Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi there, I'm Don Payne, your host for Engage 360. We're glad you're with us again. You know, it's not every day that a seminary professor writes something useful. (laughs) Now, I said that mostly just as a hook to get your attention, uh, and I need to qualify that statement considerably. Uh, Many of the things we write as seminary professors uh, do have a lot of usefulness, at least I I hope and pray that is the case, but many times they're useful kind of in an upstream sense. Uh, It's not all that common that a seminary professor will uh, write something that has more immediate practicality to a very broad audience, but today we are privileged to have as our guest one of our colleagues here at Denver Seminary who has done that very thing. So we're glad to welcome to Engage 360 Dr. Ron Welch from our counseling faculty. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. We are glad you're here uh, for many reasons, uh, but let me introduce Ron to you a little bit first. Ron uh, has been on the faculty of Denver Seminary since 2008. Uh, Before that, he taught for seven years at Colorado Christian University. He spent about seven years—I want to say he spent seven years in prison, but he actually (laughs) spent uh, about seven years working in in the prison system uh, as a psychologist. He holds a Doctor of Psychology degree from Central Michigan University and is the author of a couple of key books, the first of which is called The Controlling Husband— But the one we want to talk mostly about today is his most recent book titled 10 Choices Successful Couples Make. And interestingly, this book has made uh, almost a national splash. It's uh, garnered quite a bit of national attention just in the last few months, and we're going to have Ron tell us a little bit about that. Um, Before we do that, though, we need to talk about baseball. Of course. Of course. Because, Ron, um, if you don't know Ron, you may not know this. If you do Ron know Ron, you may not know this. But Ron is uh, uh, pretty much into baseball in a pretty serious way, coached baseball for quite a number of years, and I think just in the last year or so, retired from that. Yep. Uh, two boys, uh, uh, wife Jan. I don't know if Jan plays baseball. but uh, I think, She does not. No. I think both of your <laughs> sons played baseball, did they, they not? They did, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, tell us very briefly about your illustrious baseball coaching career, if not your baseball playing career, too. You know, it's it's awesome because baseball is one of those sports where people are destined to fail. And so from the very beginning— Sounds like it's made for me. <laughs> successful people fail about seven out of ten times and they walk up to the plate. So you, you have a failure-based experience. And for young men growing up, trying to figure out how to trust— in, in failure and figure out how to recover and be resilient, it's a great sport to teach character in. And because in, in any given game, even the most successful are probably going to have times where it doesn't go well. Okay. And so I spent about 20 years working with kids all the way from t-ball, coach pitch, all the way up to high school, coaching very highly competitive uh, college teams, high school teams. And now I'm a consultant with a local D2 athletic school. And so I work with all their athletic teams, consulting at the highest level in college in terms of how does character display itself in athletics, and how can you use athletics to learn to be the kind of person God created you to be? Was there a particular position you coached? I, I've spent most of my time working with first base and outfield, um, but I also did did some work with infield. I have no idea about pitching. My son was a pitcher, and I let all the other people 
teach him how to pitch because I had no clue how to okay. throw a curveball. <laughs> okay. Who's your team? My team is the Los Angeles Dodgers. I'm a Colorado Rockies uh, supporter since I'm here, but I am a Dodgers fan through and through. Okay. And I know you're from Idaho. I am. And I also know, because of the shirt you happen to be wearing right now, <laughs> which our listeners cannot see, that you're a Dallas Cowboys fan. Yes, indeed. So how indeed did that combination come about? You grow up in Idaho, and there are no sports teams other than the uh, local Caldwell Cougars, my high school team. That the Caldwell Cougars. <laughs> Here's to the Caldwell Cougars. <laughs> Tell you what. Um, I did, however, put a little known fact, I played my high school playoffs on the Boise State Blue uh, Smurf field. Uh, so I've played on that field several times. And You're I, the only person I know <laughs> who has actually set foot on that blue turf. I have set foot on it. In fact, I've laid on the ground and been stomped on several times. On okay. But uh, a lot of that was from not having teams in the state and looking at the teams growing up that you could admire. Roger Staubach, Golden Richards, Drew Pearson, uh, looking at the, the early Lakers teams, people that I could just look up to as a young kid and say, man, I, I wish I could play at that level. So that's where all that came from. What's the most interesting going, thing going on this season in the major leagues? You know, I think one thing that's been very interesting is that the, the, the pitchers used to be the power brokers. And now they just keep watching the ball go over the fence over and over and over again. The home run records for all time were broken like a month ago. Hmm. And so you look at that, and the game has totally changed. Now now you don't necessarily have a pitcher who can stop everybody. It's a matter of, can I hold them to three or four runs? And if I can, that's a successful game. That's a lot different than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, indeed it is. Okay, so some years ago, I met a professional baseball scout who made the observation that he, unlike most people, could look at, uh, I think, a shortstop, and he could spot the difference between a single-A-level shortstop and a triple-A-level shortstop. Can you tell that? Are you kidding? No. I don't have, I don't have that kind of skill set. Uh, scouts can go out there, and they can tell you just by body type half the time. But no, I, I have to see people in action and see them actually being uh, Well, I think that's what effective. he meant. He could, he could watch them play, and he could, he could see the difference between a single-A level and a double or triple-A level. I'm afraid Man, that's, that's a pretty finely tuned yeah, eye. Yeah, that, those are the folks that send them the games because they know they'll tell them okay. who the players are afterwards. I don't have that kind of skill level. Okay, okay. Hey, let's talk about your book. The book is entitled 10 Choices Successful Couples Make, uh, subtitled The Secret to Love That Lasts a Lifetime. Uh, I'll get into the outline here and ask you a few questions about that in just a moment. But uh, I know that and I mentioned that just recently this book has uh, attracted a bit of national attention, and I think you were even interviewed on a nationally syndicated morning show. I was. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, it was, it was pretty exciting. Uh, Fox News had found out that Henry Winkler had been married 40 years and that a couple in Carolina had been married 80 years and started looking at that and saying, wow, this lifetime marriage thing is still happening, and how is that 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 occurs when we look at the divorce rates in the country? And so they quickly called me, asked if I could fly out, uh, put me on the plane out to New York, and had a, an interview with them on Fox News um, on their uh, Fox and Friends show. And part of what was most interesting about that was that they were looking at, at the concept of how marriages survive rather than reasons for divorce. And so it was really interesting, and they asked me to come up with some of the four or five principles that I would suggest would be most valuable. And we talked about things like forgiveness and selflessness, concepts that just aren't popular in today's relationships. And I thought it was just really awesome that they were, they were interested in successful marriages rather than talking about those that don't work out. Oh, yeah. That's not the most common approach to the topic, Not is today, it? no, not yeah. at all. Okay, so here are some of the choices that you outline. 
Um, communicating well, and these are all prefaced by I choose to, uh, believe, communicate well, let go of old baggage, forgive, be unselfish, challenge unspoken truths, be intimate, not take you for granted, focus on the process, trust, and love you forever. Um, maybe in a big picture sense, what prompted you to write this book in the first place? What's the backstory? Uh, this, it, it came from the idea that there are kind of two models in marriage right now that we see in the country. Um, one is all about me, and one's all about my partner. And for many years, people have kind of had this concept that I'm, I'm really in the relationship to get my needs met. And so now, if that doesn't happen, then you sort of like click a button and unfriend your partner on Facebook, and then suddenly the relationship's over. We have no-fault divorce everywhere. There's no, no level of intentionality. College freshmen come into college telling us we kind of expect to be married two or three times. Um, there was a USA show not that long ago called The Starter Wife, where they used mm. the starter marriage concept to say, well, you're probably not going to stay with this person anyway, so you might as well learn what you need to and go on to the next one. Mm. And it really has, has gotten my heart thinking about how can we look at a model of marriage that focuses on your partner and not yourself. And so a lot of this book was based on the idea of talking to the general secular public. This is not, was not written as a book just for Christians to help other Christians become better Christians. It was meant as a book to talk to the, the, the climate of the nation as a whole, which is why it was so cool to get on Fox News, because I got to talk to a whole bunch of people oh, yeah. who wouldn't have heard the message otherwise. And that's where the concept came from, is saying, what if we were looking at other focused relationships? What if we were looking at forgiveness and selflessness and concepts that involve putting your partner first? How would that work to look at a biblical model of marriage that's suggested as more successful than anything else out there in any culture, as opposed to a model that says, I'm kind of in this for me. If it doesn't work out, I'll find somebody else that can meet my needs better. And we even have people that talk about trading up to a better model, yeah. buyer's remorse about your partner, all that kind of stuff. So even the language in our yeah, culture that language indicates becomes a very, very yeah. problematic, very toxic. Yeah, very much so. Huh. If we were to frame this theologically, it sounds like you're working in the arena of God's common grace for all, because you mentioned this is not specifically a book for Christians to help them Correct. become just better Christians, nor nor does it presume that a person has to be a Christian That's right. to have a good and healthy relationship, which, again, theologically, we can kind of root that in the concept of God's common grace for all, mm -hmm. which among many evangelical Christians, I think tends to be an underdeveloped, mm -hmm. underattended concept. I think there's also a level of looking at the way this is used evangelically. So if someone is looking at a model that works well, and it's not selfish, or it's not self-centered, or it's not focusing on resentment and bitterness and, and making you do what I want, then people tend to ask the question, well, where does that come from? Where'd you get this idea? Yeah. And conversations then ensue talking about the biblical basis for a model that works better than secular models of relationship. Right. So how did you distill your list to these 10 items? Boy, that was hard, and I, I won't— Or was uh, it an editor who just made you go with 10? Nope. They, uh, <laughs> how did Baker, you come to these 10? Baker of L are awesome. They, they've went out of their way to help, to help me develop my own kind of ideas, um, and clearly this is based on the 10 I happen to choose. But most of them came from my marital practice over the years um, and from my own marriage. Uh, from couples I've worked with, from the students I talk with here, I teach the marriage class here often, 
I've had so many opportunities to interact with couples. These are the things that I see most often successful in the work I do with couples, in the relationships I interact with, in the couples we work with in churches, in the marriage ministry we do, and in my own relationship. Okay, so you refer to your own history of working with marriages, which is considerable, I know. I'm curious what you've learned over the years working with marriages. Have um, have your have your views on anything changed over the years, or how have you um, perhaps refined your approach to dealing with marriages? What have you learned in working with marriages? One thing I've learned is that I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. Um, <laughs> yeah, join, get in line. Yeah, I, uh, I I discovered after a period of time in my own marriage, and and certainly your audience is welcome to look at the first book related to that. That first book has a lot of our history and our story in it. But I discovered that I spent a lot of time trying to get my own needs met. Here's an example. I would ask Jan, my wife, what would you like for dinner? What I was really asking was, can we start a conversation about the barbecue I'd like to have? <laughs> right? And, and when that process became clear to me— Getting a little close to home there. Yeah, Texas barbecue specifically. Okay. Although I'm still a Memphis barbecue guy. Yeah. i got okay. to clarify that. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll learn. <laughs> but overall, I was— I was having conversations on a win-lose basis. Ah. I had an idea. She had an idea. Let's see if I can convince her my idea is right. And it wasn't just because I'm a naturally selfish person. I mean, all of us struggle with some of that, but I, it's just one of my big crosses that I bear is I, I have a hard time thinking of the other person first. I have to make myself do that. Hmm. And I started thinking, gosh, what if most couples are functioning from a, I better convince the other person what I really want or it my voice won't be heard. I won't get what I need. And then I started thinking, what if we flip that upside down? What if my role in marriage is to help Jan get closer to God in every interaction I have? And what if her role is to do the same for me? What would happen if our relationships were based on trying to help the other person grow? And that's my job. And then I thought, well, the problem with that is I've got to trust because that's fine if I'm a giver and you're a taker and you take, 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 and I give, 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 but then at some point that's going to become uncomfortable and sad and depressing. But if we were both givers, I'd have to trust that you'd have my back like I do yours. This is when my relationship personally with God started to develop in the ways where I I, I kind of consider myself to be a two-stage Christian. I spent a lot of years intellectually right on top of everything faith-wise, personally, Jesus and I were in different time zones. And now over this period of time in my marriage and working with couples, I've started to realize you see who you are in your marriage. You see the true side of yourself. The mirror shows you. I was going to use that image of yep. the image, pun in, no pun intended, of a mirror. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it is a mirror. And you start to see, oh my goodness, this is who I actually am. Even worse, Don, I started seeing that I was teaching my sons how to be that way. I started seeing them order my wife to do certain things, and I was, like, saying that's what we should do. And then I'd give them the lecture, you know, the dad lecture, don't talk to your mom that way. Yeah. And at one point, God just slapped me across the face and said, you know, you're, you're teaching him that. You know that, right? This is your mini-me. You're creating these, these people who are not treating women respectfully. And as those things started happening, that led to this second book, because I started realizing, okay, I need to get my own house in order. And it took a long, long time, and every day I wake up, trying to figure out what can I do today so that Jan will feel honored and loved by God and valued. She grew up in a family where she didn't really feel that way. And then I came along and she thought I was going to be the knight in shining armor and I just replicated her childhood. And so I look at all those opportunities for even evangelism and witness and discipleship. And I'm just so sad that some of those things happened. 
And I thought, boy, if we could create a model where people could be daily in relationship for the purpose of growing each other closer to God, that would be really cool. And that's what this book is all about. I remember maybe in the realm of 15 years ago, there was a very popular book, and I may not have the title just right, and I won't name the author. I mm-hmm. don't, want to, don't want to get into those weeds. Um, but the, the the book had something to do with, or the title had something to do with his needs, her needs. Sure. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a needs, a mutual needs yep. based, how to get your needs met in marriage. Sure. Now, I never read the book, but it made a, a pretty big splash, and mm-hmm. I know people who I think seem to be really helped by it. But if, if you're familiar with that mm-hmm. whole movement, how does this compare to that? It's one thing when you're saying that that the need has to be met so that I'll be happy. If you remember that I'm okay, you're okay from way back, right. same deal. Transformational it's like, psychology. Right. That what it was? And it was the whole idea of, of I just need to make certain I tell you what I need so you can meet my needs and we're all good, but it's still all about me. Okay. I like the concept that focuses more on my role today is to be the kind of partner that can help you feel loved, honored, respected, cared for, valued, and your role with me is the same thing. That means conversations aren't about I I want and you want, so now we're going to have the two attorneys are going to argue until I get my way. It's more, wow, is there a way we can both honor each other and both get some? Do we have to compromise? Do we have to come up with door number three we've never thought of? Conversations aren't as conflictual. There's not as, not as much confrontation. And a lot of this book is about ways that you can, instead of assuming fights are going to happen, that as a couple, you can find ways to not argue, to work together as a team, not have to be opposing forces trying to make your needs get met. One of the things that really intrigues me about that, Ron, is that that strikes me as a more qualitative approach rather than a quantitative or what some would call a zero-sum mm-hmm. approach. You know, mm-hmm. I guess a lot, of, a lot of relationships operate on those zero-sum yeah. Uh, terms where, you know, there's a fixed amount of something, anything, right. fixed amount of need, fixed amount of power, fixed amount of uh, opportunity, and we're always measuring or right. bean counting to make sure that there's proper equality or that the mm-hmm. ledger's all balancing out. But if you ask an entirely different type of question, a more qualitative mm-hmm. ses- uh, set of questions, the, the game changes entirely. Yep. You, you're, you're not concerned with who's getting more of what and whether I'm getting my fair share. And it really is a very different way of living, isn't it? Especially if you think of things like forgiveness. If a, if a couple has had an affair or if there's been pornography involved or financial decisions made that felt like betrayals, and now you have to find a way to move forward. Some couples I work with, that they kind of move on, but they both remember the great pancake incident of 2016 or whatever. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know what I'm saying? I mean, it's always <laughs> It's there. always there lurking in the air as opposed to I'm going to treat you as if that never happened. The kind of forgiveness that involves a two-way interactive process with redemption and um, reconciliation, and it, it's a whole different process when you're going to say, I forgive you, and when you say I'm sorry, you mean I'm going to do everything I can to never do it again, and I forgive you means I'm not going to hold it over your your head and yeah. remind you the score is three to two. Yeah, you're right. Behind. You're not keeping score. Speaking of baseball again. Yeah. And, and you have this process where I know how far behind you are. And you got a lot of work to do to catch up as opposed to it, it, we're starting we're starting fresh. Yeah. We're not keeping a scoreboard. We're anymore. not keeping score, which yeah. I think I read something about that in one of Paul's letters. This not might have been something that was thing. here long before us. Yeah, yeah. might have been. <laughs> hey, I read uh, one of your press releases for the book, which were really interesting. And 
it, it seemed like um, the way the book was being pitched by the publishers, it, it was aimed at kind of a, what would you call it, a remedial approach, um, a reparative approach mm-hmm. to relationships that had really fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Is that a primary driver? That's, the, that's one of the audiences. The approach? Yeah, that's one of the audiences um, aimed at the idea that that no kind of conflict is irredeemable. The idea that certainly if you have violence and, and, and serious destructive processes in a relationship, that very well may involve legal authorities and courts and all that kind of thing. But if there are communication issues or there are relationship pain, all sorts of things that couples go to, con- go to counseling for, there's all sorts of ways things can be redeemable. A lot of couples come to me and they're like, well, it's either you or the divorce attorneys, and I'm figuring the attorneys are probably the best shot. And in reality, it's just because they have no hope. They can't see a way. That's part of the reason why the, one of the first chapters in the book is on hope, because a couple may think, I know you. I know who you are. I, I have a chapter talking about unspoken truths, and that idea is the, the concept that your wife knows you, if I were to ask her, she would be able to give me two or three statements that are truths that she knows to be true. And yet if those things were causing severe conflict between the two of you, that could be a real barrier to change. Because even if you tried to, to be a better person, she would say, well, I know, I know Don. I know who he's going to be. It's just a matter of time till old Don comes back. That was one of the big uh, holdups in our marriage with my wife, Jan. Even after she started seeing me try to be the man she deserved, gosh, Don, it was probably six, seven years before she started believing it was authentic and real and true. Because we'd had a lot of years of water over the falls before that. Mm. And so part of this is looking at the idea that, yes, for couples who need hope, this book is very, very valuable. On the other hand, for couples who are pre-married, newly married, looking at positive, strong relationship principles, all 10 of these these principles, I think, are very, very valid for couples starting out in marriage. Yeah, I figured they would. And, and But that's what I wanted to ask you was what what this would look like from a health-based standpoint mm-hmm. or a preemptive standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, are there, what, what suggestions would you give to people who are, you know, in that premarital stage or the, sure. they're, they're not in a bad place, but are there different ways of, of approaching these choices that then build the habits preemptively? So we talk a lot about, um, about understanding where you're at in a process, like what's happening between you. Um, the book talks about, there's a chapter that talks a lot about process over content. And what we're really talking about is that you can argue about the can opener. And it may be that you're fighting about the can opener or who left the toilet seat up or whatever else it is that seems to cause the conflict is your. But in reality, what you need to do is figure out how to change the process. Because if you interact in a way that's honoring, respectful, loving, caring, and you do that, it doesn't matter whether you're arguing about the car or who's going to take care of the kids that night, or how you're going to get over this major betrayal that occurred. You're still looking at how I treat you, not necessarily what we're talking about. That's part of the key to this model, is focusing much more on process of how you treat each other than content or what you actually talk about. One of the ways we do that is we look at things like communication, right? So a premarital couple, we might talk to them about you're talking and talking and talking, and you're saying a lot of words, but all you've been doing over and over again is saying, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you, I'm mad at you, as opposed to thinking accurately and speaking briefly in bullet points, validating that the person actually knows what you're saying, try to listen instead of, instead of proving your point. Some of those communication principles get lost 
because the emotion takes over and people are so upset. So that's part of what we would do with premarital and newly married couples is, is the book would provide a lot of skills and techniques they could use. One thing I appreciate about that, Ron, is the note on intentionality in building those disciplines proactively. And admittedly, I, th- I think for most people, the, the motivation is never quite as strong unless there's a problem, right? Uh, unless perhaps they have a vision for what they want to be and realize I've got a lot of work to do to get to that place, even if I'm not in a really bad place now. But that intentionality, and that's probably what would need to be commended to uh, Mm -hmm. listeners who are in an okay place in a relationship Mm -hmm. or on the front end of a relationship, that the the discipline, the commitments of building these habits is just as vital as it is to get out of a bad place. Right. Here's an example. I use a um, metaphor of Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever been to Niagara Falls. I have. Big waterfall, lots of water. Uh, the Gingriches want me to clarify the Canadian side is, is much prettier. Yes, they so do make aware. that point, don't okay, they? They're very clear about that. Yeah. But, but in general, the metaphor was one I lo- used in the prison system because it worked with a lot of violent individuals. They probably couldn't stop themselves from acting violently on the wreck yard uh, two days after they were disrespected in the lunch line because they're so angry and their fist is ready to punch somebody. But two or three days before, they might have been able to make different choices. So with premarital couples, with newly married couples, with couples who have been in conflict for 20 years, I use this analogy of Niagara Falls that I learned from Bill Fleeman and a lot of work he did with anger management. And we then help people learn where they're at in the water, how close they are to the falls. When you went to Niagara Falls, you probably didn't go up river or up above the falls and go back. Well, it's, it's calm. You can get in and out of the water. You can take rowboats, whatever. And what we learned is the closer to the falls – the more power there is, the diff- more difficult it is to get out. And most marital conflict takes place right at the edge of those falls when it feels like it's overwhelming. Yeah, what a great image. And it works because couples can relate to it. Oh, yeah. I have couples who have laminated a picture of Niagara Falls on their kitchen refrigerator door, <laughs> and they've got, here's our warning signs. And, <laughs> and here's where we are right, our, right we're, It's coming. we got to change. And, and if we develop, we work with them to develop all the warning signs to see when they're getting closer, you start doing those kinds of things. Those skills are valid for a newly married couple, pre-married couple, Couple's been married for 40 years. Wow. For a seminary professor, you're amazingly helpful. <laughs> we try to be. <laughs> hey, tell me a little bit about one of these chapters. You have uh, the chapter on forgiveness broken out into two parts. Uh, one of them, the subtitle is, or part two, is choosing to forgive the big stuff. What, what do you mean by that? And the big stuff in comparison to stuff you don't forgive? I mean, what, what are you talking about there? <laughs> This came from conversations I've had over the years with uh, one of my good friends, a great author, Ev Worthington, who has written a ton of books about forgiveness. Yeah. And he had to go through the process of figuring out how to forgive the individual who brutally offended against his mother and killed his mother and went through the process of developing what does it look like to forgive a person in a Christian worldview who did something that horrendous in your life? How could you treat them as a redeemed child of God? And I started thinking about that, and I thought, well, it's one thing to say, I forgive you because you fouled me in the pickup basketball game. Um, and, and it's one thing to then live in unforgiveness, right, where you're literally resentful and bitter all the time. And a lot of the couples I work with, that's their, that's their place where they dwell. There's a, a level of, I need to make certain you pay for what you did. And I started realizing that forgiving the big stuff like pornography, um, alcohol and drug use, um, prescription medication abuse, maybe financial choices, losing jobs, not 
being the kind of parent that I wish you would be, all those things. Stuff that's got a lot of tangible effects and long-term effects. For a long time. And it starts to become, that's who your character is. You're a bad father. You're a, a person who's late all the time. That forgiveness piece involves getting to the point where I can literally say, I'm going to let go of the power that not forgiving you gives me. And what I mean by that is that when you hold something against someone, you have power over them. Sure. You, they owe you one. That whole phrase in our society, there's lots of ways that's discussed. And it's almost as if they don't get to get away with it. If I forgive them, they get to do what they did, and they get treated as if that's not right. Violates our sense of justice. Yeah. How dare we do Oh, wait a second. That's what our actual experience is, and that's what God did for us. Hmm. How do I forgive like Christ forgave me? And that's really difficult, especially for a lot of couples I work with who don't have that Christian model at all. They're like, what do you mean I'm going to give up justice? They're going to pay. That's part of where the model in this book is different, because I'm arguing that that never ends up doing anybody any good. It destroys you from the inside as well as your partner. And so this model is talking about something that would involve not holding on to that bitterness for a long time. Okay. I think one of the most intriguing titles in your book is I Choose to be intimate hmm. toward the end of the book. Now, that's intriguing because there's, a, I think, a pretty widespread, popular notion in our country that um, choices like that, like intimacy, whatever you mean by intimacy, kind of have to grow out of where you already are authentically. Right. And this is a very different type of approach. Mm-hmm. I, because to many, to many ears, at least of the type of people I know, that would sound backwards. Right. I choose to be intimate. Tell us more about that. So it's the same thing as, as thinking about whether you fall into love or fall out of love, you know, like it happens to you. I like to think of it as jumping into love It's and, and staying in love and actively choosing every day to be the person your partner deserves. If you choose to be intimate, it's saying, I'm going to work hard today to know you. Because the version of intimacy I like the best is that knowing and being known concept of, of someone knowing who you are, your character, your personhood. If I'm going to do that with my wife today, I have to actively engage in time with her, in space for us to be together, in activities that will allow me to to help her grow and know more about what she is and what's important to her now. And you can't do that if you don't even have five minutes in the day for your relationship. I ask couples all the time to pull out their planners and I'll say, so who's in your planner? And like the jobs in there and some crazy Uncle Louie, the dog gets a place. You know, everybody's in there. There's a chicken, whatever. But nowhere in there is my wife or my husband. And then I'll ask them, so when does your marriage happen? In a regular week. And they'll say, well, maybe between 9.55 after the kids go to bed and 10.15 when we're watching a show. You can't have a successful, intimate marriage if it happens for five minutes a day. So the idea of choosing to be intimate means I'm going to actively seek to be close to you, to connect with you, and to be known by you every day. Mm. You know, your approach overall is incredibly Augustinian. Mm. Because St. Augustine uh, situated the the will, the volition, as the core faculty yes. of the human person. Mm-hmm. And so when you use this language, I choose to this, that's right. a growing out of a robustly Augustinian anthropology. Now, there's more to his anthropology, you know, that uh-huh. could be discussed, but uh, that, that caught my eye mm-hmm. that I choose to do this 
is so pivotal and powerful and central to this whole model. It's kind of the key sanctification point, right? It's like, I'm going to decide to have a positive influence in the world today. I'm going to let my faith, who I am and what God's done for me, drive everything I do in the precious moments I'm given. Mm. If that's how you live your life in your marriage, my guess is it's going to be one of those lifetime marriages people can be uh, very, very satisfied with. Yeah, well put. Dr. Ron Welch. Hey, here's uh, the time in the podcast when I ask the, uh, the SSPQ, which is the Stereotypically Stupid Podcast question. <laughs> so for you, what is the least professorial thing you do? The least professorial. Other than um, baseball. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we hang out in the mountains a lot. And, and I, I try to realize that when I'm in professor mode, by definition, I'm teaching or trying to make something happen. When I go up to the mountains, we hang out in Dillon. We've been going there since our, our honeymoon. We go up there every year. When I'm hanging out by the lake and, and looking at God's majesty of those mountains all around and all the reflections, I can't try to make anything happen. All I can do is just sit back and say, man, God, you're awesome. Got to receive. And if I can receive, then I'm not being a professor. I'm sitting back and God's teaching me rather than me trying to teach someone else. Wow, that was a far more profound answer than I expected <laughs> to a stupid question like that. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Dr. Ron Welch, our professor in our counseling program here at Denver Seminary, and his book is 10 Choices Successful Couples Make, and the book he referred to previously was The Controlling Husband. Is that right? That's right. When did that come out? That was about four, four and a half years before this book, so it would be uh, 2014. Okay, good. Ron, thanks. You're this welcome. This has been thanks for a lot me. of fun. And thanks to each of you for listening. We hope you'll keep listening. And if I could ask one thing of you, if you've enjoyed the podcast, um, tell a friend about it. And if you have not already subscribed, uh, please do that. Subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. You can reach us with questions or comments of any sort. Just email us, uh, podcast at denverseminary.edu. And we hope that you'll periodically visit our website as well and look at different programs and resources we have. Uh, as always, I want to thank our incredible product production team who make all this happen uh, in, in real time and in cyberspace. Uh, Dusty DeSanto, uh, Krista Ebert, Rob Foley, Aaron Johnson, and Michael Roberts, and Maritza Smith, and Sean Truman, and Andrea Wayan. These folks are incredible. And one of these days, I might even interview one of them just to embarrass them and let you get a sense of who they are and what they do. So I'm Don Payne, your host. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary, and we hope to talk to you again next week.